Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. And now I'm in Vandalia. And so um, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, time. Uh, we are able to spend the whole month here with you in January. And February is up in our Kalamazoo church. And then since then, I've been running around the whole world. I <laughs> uh, had a great time. We did do a report last night at uh, Vine Saturday night. Uh, a few of you were able to make it, but um, had an amazing time ministering both in Japan and in Thailand, doing a lot of different forms of ministry, both uh, prayer walking and intercession, as well as encouraging both the, the pastors in Japan. There's a number of them that I am connected with and the church there. And then the brand new church in Thailand, uh, uh, begun by the Samantha and uh, Tim Gordon, who I've known for quite a few years. They've actually come to our church a few times. Um, They continue their mission work in China, but they're starting a church in Thailand. And so we were there for their third service, having monthly services, and it was just a real boost for them as they're starting this whole new season of their life. Two little kids. Uh, just as cute as can be, and um, they had a great turnout. There was about 20 people come to their meeting. The first meeting uh, two months ago was over 40 people, and and even better, of the 20 that came this uh, past week, uh, four of them made serious commitments. He he said, we need people to help in various areas, and someone committed to do children's ministry, because I'm like, it's a New Day church. They have a bunch of kids (laughs) <laughs> it's great. Uh, that's one of the signs. And uh, there's a ton of kids. And so they already have kids ministry. And uh, two other people uh, uh, volunteered to um, visit an elderly person in the neighborhood. And another person volunteered to do translation. What's interesting is in Thailand, there's a lot of Chinese because Tim and Samantha speak uh, Mandarin. And so uh, the congregation that was assembled, actually there were more Chinese speaking people than there were Thai people. It's quite interesting. And so my sermon, I would speak in English, they would translate the Chinese, and then they would translate the Thai. And you'd speak another sentence, and then you wait. <laughs> and it's a trick. Fortunately, I'd done that before, and uh, I kind of knew what to expect. And I instantly cut my notes in half. <laughs> and I still went over. Uh, <clears throat> so just thank you so much. As a church... Because you are a church and faithful here and supporting this work, we're able to support the church in, in um, Japan. And Dennis, the pastor, said if it wasn't for New Day's support, they would not be able to live. Uh, we are their main church, their main financial support. And he said we'd probably be homeless. Um, and so uh, they are reaching long-term commitment to build a congregation in one of the least reached nations in the world. Japan is less than one-tenth of one percent Christian. And then also, now in Thailand, um, we're starting the church, and so they're building a congregation to reach, again, one of the uh, uh, lesser-reached nations. Uh, Thailand is not as unreached as as Japan, but it's still very, very, very unreached. And it's mainly uh, Buddhist, and there's Buddhist temples everywhere, but there's also an incredible level of immorality Prostitution is legal, and so a big part of what we did was minister uh, with an organization that rescues young girls uh, and sometimes boys from sex slave industry. 
And so um, we're partnered with another ministry that that's all they do. We're starting the church to help uh, the families that come out of that and then also help the families that are involved in ministering that, right? And just reaching uh, Thai people that live there. And so your support of this church actually reaches to the ends of the earth as we help uh, encourage, support, and, and fund these other ministries. So it's really exciting. So thanks. Thank you. <laughs> and they send their gratitude. I'm telling you, it's uh, when, when I, we go and take teams, this is a small team, just Pastor Anthony and I, uh, you can literally see life being injected into them because they're out on the front lines. And we come in, it's kind of like, you know, I'm not quite, but the image just come to mind, like uh, in the war when they'd have the SOS. Remember the SOS? The song and dance routines that came in and encouraged the soldiers. It's almost like that because we just come in and have joy and, you know, we minister, but a lot of our ministry is just encouraging them and they just get pumped up. You can just see them lighten up and get the pressures taken off and we couldn't do that without you so you're doing it by sending us so thanks so much all right we're going to continue and the the series that we're in the middle of right now is talking through the week of easter in scripture and we've done this a little different than our normal series is that in that uh, what i'm preaching this morning is the exact same passage that uh, graham mckeg is teaching up in Kalamazoo, because we wanted to go through chronologically the events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, which we will talk about today, and then next week, the resurrection, Easter Sunday. And uh, Easter is, um, you know, the, the, the holy day of Christianity. It's the most important day. It's the climax of the message of the gospel, Jesus' resurrection. So do uh, realize that it's one of the best times to invite people to church. They're more likely to come on Easter morning, so if you have a friend or a neighbor, uh, be sure to invite them. We'll be talking about, Mark will be here talking about what the resurrection means, and it's it's really the gospel. And today I'm talking about the cross. One thing I ask for grace <clears throat> is that, uh, um, this is again, this is the second time ever I've used someone else's notes, <laughs> and Graham wrote this outline, uh, and but he doesn't write an outline, he writes the whole thing out, and so I had to kind of modify it a little bit. So I have twice as many slides, and he told me, just, he said, no detours allowed. <laughs> he said, you can get through it, but no detours. And that's really hard for me, because I don't know how to drive in a straight line. <laughs> so we're going to talk through this. We're looking at each, ver- and then I left my Bible somewhere. It's not with me, but I got the slides, and I can pull it up on my phone if need be. But we're going to read through chapter 27 of uh, Matthew, and... <clears throat> and talk through what happened uh, leading up. As I said, it's a continuation of the last series. They've already looked earlier at the Last Supper and what that meant and how Jesus instituted this new covenant in my blood, he says. So the promise of God sealed by the blood of Jesus uh, for forgiveness of sin. And last week, you guys uh, talked about how Jesus was betrayed and uh, abandoned today, uh, we're talking about the cross, which is the central moment in the story of Jesus' life on earth. And as Christians, you need to really understand <clears throat> that it's Christ's death on the cross. If he did no teaching whatsoever, if he did no miracles <clears throat> whatsoever, and came, lived in a man, and died on the cross, he would have accomplished 
his task. Okay, so the teaching that he taught, yes, it's important. Yes, it's, it's of God. Yes, it was God's will for him to do that. And the miracles, all of that was to inform us of who he was and what he was doing. But this was his major accomplishment. It was his death on the cross that gained us uh, salvation. Oops, I skipped ahead a few times here. Yeah, right. So we're going to read through Matthew 27, uh, verse 27 through 66, uh, one portion at a time, and then talk about it, and then sum up at the end how it, what it all means. So we're going to start out verses 27 through 31. It says, The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. Uh, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to do something real quick here. That I forgot to do earlier. And then twisted uh, together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. So this is after he was arrested in the garden and, and taken by the soldiers to be tried. They begin to mock him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And they had, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes, and then they led him away to crucify him. Uh, Jesus was condemned by the Jewish leaders and a Roman trial and is now in the hands of his executioners. And he was led to the praetorium. The praetorium was a residence, was a dwelling place of the governor, and the company of soldiers was probably at least 600. Um, on the one hand, this was just business as usual for the soldiers. The Romans crucified uncounted numbers of prisoners, of enemies of the state, of criminals, that was uh, a common sight in uh, under Roman rule throughout that part of the world. And so these guys were used to it. They were just crucifying this another Jewish rebel who got too big for his own good and was now paying the price. But on the other hand, there was something... Uh, uh, it was not an ordinary execution. Uh, the way the involvement of the Jewish leaders, the involvement of the... Um, governor Pontius Pilate and actually king the king was involved as well they knew that this was something special and so they played along they 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 kind of got into the whole sh show uh, Jesus was already weakened by the flogging and now he's being mocked um, you know a lot of preachers and you can hear this online I personally don't do this a lot of times you hear the story of the crucifixion and they'll go on and on about the details of how painful and describe, uh, you know, the blood and guts of it all. I personally am just not comfortable with that. It, I can't, I, I can't take it, for one. And I don't like to sensationalize. I'm not saying what they do is wrong. That's just not how I present it. I think we can get a good idea. If you need a better idea, watch the movie The Passion, because it's depicted there pretty graphically. But he was beaten and he was flogged, and the punishment that he bore was immense. But he, uh, it, the physical manifestation of that uh, was nothing compared to the spiritual reality 
of what he endured because of sin when he took on our guilt and our shame and and the punishment of our sin. So to the soldiers, in their eyes, he is a self-appointed king. They probably thought he was delusional, uh, and they treated him as a criminal. Uh, uh, Away from the public eyes, they mocked Jesus with a robe of crown and thorns, a staff, and bowing their knees. Uh, All of this shows, that whole part of the story was to, to demonstrate that Jesus had been rejected by the Jews, right? Turned over to the Romans, the Gentiles, and then tried and and rejected and beaten by the Gentiles. This is symbolic, or it represents, the fact that all of humanity, Jews, God's chosen people, Gentiles, every other race on the planet, right, had turned against Jesus. The religious rulers, the government, the justice system, even his closest friends had rejected him. That's what this story is really uh, communicating. Oh, this clicker is just making being uh, sensitive today. <clears throat> it's okay, clicker. All right, next, next section of the verse. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene. So he's being crucified, and uh, they, he had to carry his cross to the place of crucifixion. They met a man from Cyrene named Simon. And they forced him to carry the cross. They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes uh, by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, that was one of the things Jesus said when uh, he saw the temple, um, save yourself. Prove it, Jesus. Save yourself. Come down off the cross if you're the Son of God. And so they're mocking and making fun of him. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Uh He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They said this all in mocking tones. So you can imagine Jesus on the cross suffering for the very people who were mocking him and them standing in front of him saying these hurtful, right to the core of his identity, challenging him to uh, come down off the cross. The truth is he could have come down off the cross. All right, He could have called on God to, to deliver him. He could have overcome it by power. But he chose not to because he knew that this was the way of salvation. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So the description of the crucifixion is actually quite short. When you consider how long the Gospels are, the amount of time that's devoted to describing what happens is is very brief. It mentions Jesus, but it also talks about everything that's going on around him as he's dying. You, You have Simon... Uh, 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 the Cyrene, and so he was a pilgrim from North Africa. He was probably a black guy uh, that helped, we don't know for sure, 
uh, but, uh, very likely, who helped carry the cross. Uh, typically, the prisoners would carry their own cross, uh, but Jesus was too weakened by the flogging and the beating. We see the uh, soldiers divvy up Jesus' clothes. That was a, a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I don't have time to go through all of the Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled. In fact, there's whole books written uh, uh, identifying how each one of these uh, actions, unbeknownst to the soldiers and even the high priests, were literal fulfillments of prophecies hundreds or thousands of years beforehand. Uh, And then we have the criminals who are crucified, the priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, uh, all involved in this very dynamic scene of Christ's crucifixion. And Jesus was crucified outside the city uh, at the place of the skull. Uh, Golgotha literally means uh, the place of the skull, but it was also uh, called Calvary. And in the Gospel of Luke, it, uh, he uses that term, Calvary, because that was another common name for uh, the location that Jesus was crucified. So it was actually a law amongst the Romans, as well as in Jewish law, that a person could not be crucified or put to death in the city, in the camp. They had to be taken out. Uh, Everybody that was stoned in the Old Testament was stoned outside the camp. Um, So he died there uh, uh, because the body, this is a quote from a a commentary, says he died there because the bodies of the beasts slain in sacrifice as typical of him, were burned without the camp. Jesus also, as the antitype, suffered without the gate. So that's a little theological term, but it's one that every Christian should be aware of. There's types and antitypes, uh, shadows and substance. And so a type in the Old Testament is a symbol that points towards something in the New Testament. The symbol points towards something else. And for whatever reason, theologians came up with these obscure term called type and antitype. <laughs> the antitype is the reality that the type foreshadowed. Okay, and so the type were the animal sacrifices. Okay, and they would sacrifice, and some of the blood was sprinkled, but the carcass of the animal, the skin and stuff, was burned outside the camp. Uh, and Jesus was the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, and so him being crucified, his body being crushed outside the camp, was a fulfillment of every animal sacrifice throughout the whole Old Testament. And we read about this very clearly in the book of Hebrews, which was written to explain to Hebrews, that's why it's called Hebrews, Hebrews are Jewish people, all right, Uh, the new covenant and how it integrates with the Old Testament. And so the writer of Hebrews says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So we have scripture teaching us why Jesus was crucified outside the gate. The mocking sign that Jesus is king of the Jews was intended as an insult. Okay? So Pilate wrote that, and in another place the Jewish leaders say, don't put that on there. Put on there, he said he was king of the Jews. But, you know, Pilate didn't really like the Jews, <laughs> Jewish leaders. He says, I'll put on it whatever I want. Uh, king of the Jews. So there. You know? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was, it was intended as an insult to the Jewish leaders. It was intended as an insult to Jesus. You call yourself king of the Jews, and yet here you are, crucified, unable. The Jews, the, the Jews themselves that you say, claim uh, lordship over, rejecting you. 
And so it was rejection upon rejection. But unwittingly, it was a declaration of truth, wasn't it? Because Jesus was king of kings. I love that. In eternity, it will read king of the Jews. And it's true. You know, and Jesus was actually demonstrating his kingship in such a clear and powerful way. Uh, but the world didn't understand it. We'll get to that in a minute. If I quit taking detours. <laughs> All right. Uh, right. So the Romans used crucifixion as a as a means to warn people because it was such an intense uh, form of punishment. Uh, and uh, it was a way to deter uh, other rebels and criminals. Uh, Jesus is crucified um, with two other uh, rebels. And so in his death, he is associated with sinners. Right? He died with sinners on his, both of his side. He didn't die as a righteous man, so to speak. Uh, he took upon himself our iniquity and our infirmity. Crucifixion was designed to be the most painful but also shameful way to die. Uh, often the victims were tied with ropes or nailed to the cross, uh, as with Jesus. And so it was, it was very shameful <clears throat> and very painful. Oops, there we go again. Come on. Eventually people would die from exhaustion uh, because they would have to lift themselves up <laughs> to get, grasp air, and then the weight of their body would pull them back, and they couldn't inhale because of the weight of the body uh, suspended on the arms <clears throat> and they would just die of exhaustion uh, and intense pain. Often it would take days. They were surprised Jesus died so quickly and that's why they stabbed his side to prove it. Uh, the mocking words that uh, were spoken and Jesus' response is really almost a verbatim fulfillment of Psalm 22 and I have so much more I don't have time to read Psalm 22 but please read that. Uh, I remember when I was in college, first saved, and uh, a few months later, my, my roommate, that we'd become good friends, and are still good friends, he, he had gotten saved. And I grew up in a, and I went to Lutheran school, so I, kindergarten through eighth grade, so I learned all about the Bible, right? But I'd fallen away. And, but he hadn't, he had no knowledge at all. And I remember one day he came to me all excited because he came across Psalm 22 and read it. And he was like, this, this, is, this is talking about Jesus. I mean, those are the same words. He was like, like really excited. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so if you've never experienced that, read through the Old Testament. Jesus is found on every page. All right, the death of Jesus. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, la sabach... I can say this. I know I've done it. La sabachthai... La sabachthai... Who can say that? Lama sabachthani. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh-huh. Uh, when some of these uh, standing heard this, they thought he was ca calling on Elijah because he's an Eli, Eli, uh, but it was actually a different term. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with wine, vinegar, uh, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, just leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. You can see it's kind of a spectacle, and the Romans actually did this and made it a spectacle so that people would come out and see it. Uh, uh, when Jesus uh, cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, he died. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook. The rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies, now this is the crazy part, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. All right? I don't know where that came from. I don't see that in the Old Testament. But by golly, it happened. You know, someone should come up with a book and write about it. <laughs> it's just one of those things that's in Scripture and you go, huh, that's interesting. But it was the power of what was happening had that effect that dead people came back to life. And then it says they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, so they had to wait a few days in the tomb, just like Jesus. Whatever that meant. I don't know. And went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Whoa. Uh, when the centurion and those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, exclaiming, surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary... Uh, and the mother of uh, Zebedee's son. So the final three hours of Jesus' life, after he suffers and dies, um, and being separated from God the Father, thick darkness covered the earth, and, and, and the earthquake, and the rock splitting, all of that were natural manifestations of what was going on in the spiritual realm. And so we live as though the spirit realm is disconnected from the natural realm. But in reality, it's much, much more connected than we can ever imagine. What happens in heaven affects earth. And, 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 and it was it, the most intense thing ever that has ever happened was happening then. And it showed up. And sometimes we see things happen in earth and we think, oh, it's just a storm. But who knows? It could be spiritual battles going on. <clears throat> um, so we see that depicted clearly in Jesus' death here. And again, it echoes uh, Psalm 22, Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is, is a quote from that, that psalm. Now, Jesus did not lose his faith, very important here, in God. He simply lost contact. Why have you forsaken? Why have you left me alone? All right. And so this is the first and only moment in Jesus' life that he did not have that constant contact with the Father. Right? Now, we're born orphans because of sin. And we come into relationship, and it's new, and like, wow, God loves us. But Jesus had that because he had no sin from the moment of his birth. And this, I believe, was the most torturous moment and the most intense part of the pain and agony of the crucifixion, that the, the beating and the nails and the hanging on the cross was only a way to demonstrate to us the pain and the agony that Jesus felt when he felt separated from his Father, cut off. Because that is the result of sin, that we're separated from the Father, right? But Jesus endured that as well. He didn't lose faith, he just lost contact. He called him God, when almost every other time in Scripture... He calls him Father. <clears throat> Next, the curtain from the temple was torn in two. Rock split, earthquake, holy people coming back to life. Uh, terrified people, the centurions and the guards saying this must have been uh, the Son of God. So there was chaos and fear and disruption. So 
there's some important aspects here that we want to focus on. The curtain temple was torn from the top to the bottom, and that is huge. And can you imagine being the priest in the temple when that happened? Like, earthquake. I think the Bible showed that. The Bible series showed that pretty well. Um, and so it symbolized God reaching down and, and tearing that curtain. Um, uh, this was likely the veil between the Holy of Holies and the sanctuary where the priests worked. And so only one time a year the high priest was allowed behind that veil. It was the most holy thing. But all of a sudden, this changes everything. The veil is torn. Uh, so it's no longer limiting uh, uh, access to the Holy of Holies. And a lot of meanings can be deduced from this. But a couple of them is that access to God will no longer be governed, listen to this, by the religious system that actually put Jesus on the cross. So God was changing the, uh, the way that we access. We now uh, have a new and living way by which we can come into the Holy of Holies, which is Christ Jesus, actually the body of Christ. It says that, I think, in Hebrews. Um, <clears throat> so there's a new way, new access to the presence of God. Everyone now has access. That curtain of separation, God removed. Um, it may also mean that God's presence left the temple. And this is kind of interesting. So we, we, we think of that curtain as keeping men out of God's presence, but also it was the define, it defined the location of where God's presence was. And all of a sudden, God wasn't limited to just there. He, his spirit was now what? Poured out on all flesh, right? And so this is a major transition in the way uh, the old, now, the purpose of the Old Testament and the Old Testament religious traditions and, and everything God had set up is very, very important to teach us many, many things about God. But they teach us that it leads to this, okay? And so if you understand it correctly, it leads to the point where God is now poured out upon all of the earth and he wants all men, women, children from every race, every nationality, every language, every tongue to have access to him directly not through a priesthood, uh, that we become priests and kings. Uh, of course, the Bible teaches that. Okay, <clears throat> so here, another thing that happens, the soldiers declare that Jesus is son, the Son of God. Now, Jesus had said this about him, and his followers believed him. And this was actually the charge. This is why Jesus was crucified, because he claimed to be God the Son, uh, the Son of God. And that's why they put it on the cross above him. The these very soldiers had just been mocking him and beating him because he'd made this claim, right? Uh, God had affirmed it when he came out of the baptismal waters. Behold, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, right? He affirmed it later on the Mount of Transfiguration. Demons had cried it out uh, when they encountered Jesus. But at this point, up until this point, no other person outside of Jesus' disciples, and even them, kind of had a hard time, you know, it was Peter that finally said, you're, you're Christ, the Son of God. You know, and he nailed it. He said, Peter, you nailed it. But they didn't quite understand. But here, Gentile soldiers say, truly, this was the Son of God. So it's in, listen, this is the point, it's a huge point. It's in Jesus' death, the unbelievers suddenly acknowledge 
that Jesus is the Son of God. There's something about that uh, that that convinces people that Jesus' claims were real, and it's counterintuitive. All right, so that's the point of the cross: is that God, Jesus is a different kind of God that no other religion presents. Jesus is the God who comes to die, motivated out of love, who takes our place. Uh, and uh, and that gets past all of the arguments. And it made these soldiers realize it was true. So we quickly go through the burial of Jesus. The evening approached, and uh, uh, there came a rich man from uh, Arimathea named Joseph. Um, I always thought it was kind of interesting that the person who took care of Jesus' body had the same name as his father. Um, who had himself become uh, his natural father who had passed away, as far as we know, <clears throat> who had himself become a disciple of Jesus, goes to Pilate, asks for Jesus' body. Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that had been cut out of the rock. The tombs in Israel are actually caves. Uh, by the way... Uh, so are um, mangers, all right? Every manger scene you've ever seen is a little wood shack. They didn't do that in Israel. They didn't have that many trees, but they had caves all over the place. Jesus was born in a cave, and he was buried in a cave. <clears throat> kind of interesting, eh? Uh, so they placed him. Um, uh, he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb, so the, the women stayed Things begin to move very quickly here. Uh, there would have been very little time for the burial to happen uh, before the actual Sabbath. Uh, so this, the crucifixion happened on Friday, uh, and then the Sabbath is Saturday, and there are strict rules against uh, this type of behavior being done on the Sabbath. And so they wanted to get in very quickly on Friday. Uh, Jesus, uh, or sorry, Joseph, the follower of Christ, asks Jesus for permission, and using a family tomb was a sign of deep respect and honor and affection. And so this was a significant thing that, that Joseph did. But like at the cross, when Jesus was dying, we see the important place Matthew and God, in his recorded word, places on the women who stayed. All of the men fleed. Even Joseph, after he got Jesus in the tomb, left. But the women stayed. And one of the things that a lot of people that teach about women's roles in ministry miss is that women's roles in the New Testament uh, are written in such a way that they were radically uh, confrontational of what was then uh, a culture that really demeaned women. And here we see the women as being faithful and the men running and being uh, afraid and hiding. So it's just interesting that that's how the story is depicted. It's a very important um, <clears throat> uh, part of, of the story. The tomb entrance was covered by a stone that typically was a disc shape uh, and rolled in place in a groove, and it would have been very, very, very difficult to move. Uh, it took a lot of people to move it. Very heavy. You can go to Israel. Have you been to Israel? You've been to Israel. Seen the, I have yet to be there. So Dale can fill, this, fill you all in and tell, tell you where I've, I've made mistakes after service. <laughs> All right, so uh, finally, uh, verse 62, the next day, the one, uh, the day after uh, preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate 
Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples will come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And so he said, take a guard. <clears throat> Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Despite all that had happened, we still see that the chief priests and the Pharisees were afraid. All right, As if it wasn't enough that happened already, they went to Pilate and asked more to be done. Jesus is dead. He's in the tomb. And the religious leaders are still plotting against him. And they remind Jesus this talk about raising on the third day. It's interesting to note that now they actually got Jesus' message correct. Right? They, 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 um, uh, when they went to Pilate the first time during the trial, they presented the information differently, accusing him of, 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 uh, of, of uh, planning the destruction of the literal temple, which was built by Herod, which had been an act of terrorism. But now they, um, they actually had understood he was talking about his body rising from the dead. So it's kind of interesting to get an inside peek at uh, what the scribes and the Pharisees were actually afraid of. All right. Where'd I go? Right, okay. One click. The expression they used also is telling because they called Jesus a deceiver, yet they, were, uh, they are very concerned that what he said might come true. Uh, and so worried so that they take action, uh, uh, thinking that Jesus' disciples would have the power or the ingenuity to overcome uh, the, all of the things that had been put into place. <clears throat> and so they get the guard. Uh, the deception that Jesus is alive would have been worse than the first deception, they say. And so uh, Pilate agreed to put the guards in place. And so now we have all earthly power has been wielded against Jesus in life and now even in death, his tomb guarded by uh, the Roman soldiers who were the, the strongest army that had ever existed. So what is a reason? That's the story. Now we just want to talk about the meaning of it and kind of extract some application, look at a few other scriptures that talk about the importance of the cross. Uh, so we can understand and come up with an appropriate response to this, this message of the story. Uh, of the cross. You know, from the earliest days of the church, Christians have been celebrating. Every time we do communion, that's a celebration of Christ's death. Uh, telling this story, reflecting on the cross. Paul said that's what he preached Christ crucified. Okay, and so this is the primary message. We as Christians, you as a believer, need to understand this. Uh, and we continue to preach it. Uh, uh, to this day. In many ways, it's impossible to explain or understand or comprehend the fact that God, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, uh, of all things, would come and live on earth and choose to die and die this painful, horrible death. But in the midst of this, we need to understand that the New Testament tells us throughout the whole New Testament many, many things about why this had to happen. We're going to focus on three important points, okay? First important point, and a lot of people get this wrong, they don't understand it, is that uh, the New Testament is very clear, Jesus chose to die on the cross. He wasn't murdered in that sense. It was his goal. 
In fact, one place it's, he went to accomplish the cross. And one of the depictions as he's journeying, journeying toward Jerusalem, that was his accomplishment. Uh, he did that willingly uh, for our redemption to overcome sin. Jesus was well aware what was going to happen. The book of Hebrews again explains this. We need to understand it. it says, uh, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us throw off everything that hinders uh, and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. So that's application. Okay? That's what we're supposed to do in response. You know, Don't let sin entangle you. Let's run free. Why? <clears throat> uh, so that we can have the perseverance to run the race marked before us because we're looking to Jesus the pioneer, the one that went ahead of us, and the perfecter, the one who makes it complete of our faith. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God uh, on the throne. So we're, we keep Jesus' focus, and that gives us freedom from sin and motivation and energy to run. Uh, we're following Christ. <clears throat> Second thing is that the cross is central to our identity who we are, what it means to be Christian, what it means to be living in relationship with God as a believer. It means that uh, it's the means by which we are brought in and restored uh, relationship with God, where the sin that we were guilty of was punished, and sin, death, and hell were overcome by the power of Jesus. So we don't get freedom from sin by ritual, right? Even charismatic ritual or evangelical ritual, like reading your Bible every day or memorizing scripture or singing great worship songs or uh, traditional, maybe uh, other uh, uh, rituals like burning incense or doing confession and all these things, right? That, those are all like missing the mark a little bit. It's this, it's the cross that frees us, coming back to the cross. Uh, Romans says it clearly, wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus paid the price. He paid the wages of sin personally and completely. He died, it says in another place, once and for all. Right? Once He took care of it completely and eternally. He died for sin. <clears throat> he himself, and Peter, Peter says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. How did that happen? I can't explain that. If you can explain God, you need to find a bigger God. Does that make sense? <laughs> I can't understand. How's that transaction? I don't have to understand it to tell other people. I've been set free from sin because my sin was taken by Jesus. Well, how? I don't know. He's that big. He could take it all. You know, I don't know how a millionaire can you know, could walk up and pay off all my debts. But he could do it, right? Uh, and that's just what this is. This is a, a spiritual transaction that happened. And, and so we need to understand it, we need to believe it, and we need to say it. Uh, but we may not comprehend the depths of it. Uh, he, Peter says he took, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and, this is the rest of the story, live for righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Healed from all sin. Healed from all shame. I believe that healing applies also to physical healing. That it's available. Whether we experience the fullness of that in this life 
or have to wait until the next life, I'm telling you, I will have a body without pain, without sickness. I will live forever because Jesus died on that cross. And so will you if you believe that. The only thing that keeps people from heaven is believing this. All right? So believe it. The cross shapes our identity. Oh, I have to hurry up. Uh, because we are to live a life that is shaped by a cross. This is kind of interesting. It's called a cruciform. Cruciform is just the shape of the cross. Life, a life that recognizes the complete and fundamental different way that God exercises power and authority on earth. You know, the world seeks power through wealth, uh, uh, boasting, pride, force. The biggest, the loudest, the strongest, you know, they win and they're celebrated. That's the world system. But a cruciform life, a life of the cross, uh, it says the opposite. The opposite is true. Um, In Galatians, it says, May I never boast, Paul writing this, "May uh, May I never boast except, the only thing Paul boasted about, the only thing that he actually took credit in, is something that he didn't do. Uh, is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Everything in the world is dead, and I'm dead to it, because I died on the cross with Jesus. We can boast in the cross of Christ. He accomplished it for us. Christians, or or, or people who live a crucified life, uh, choose the cross rather than the systems and values of this world. I love this, this sentence, and this is a direct quote from Graham McKig, <laughs> doctor, almost Dr. Graham McKig. Where there is war, we seek peace. Where there's division, we seek reconciliation. Where there's oppression, we seek freedom. Where there's bitterness, we seek joy. Tear, where there's tearing apart, we seek wholeness. Where there's dishonor, we seek honor. We do it the other way around. We don't capitalize on other people's weaknesses. The way of the cross says that in humbling ourselves as Christ did to the obedience of God the Father to do His will, not our own way, uh, we follow Him uh, to our own death. We're following what Jesus says, follow me. And the end of His earthly life was death. But then there's the resurrection, which we'll talk about next week. And so that's the death of our will Doing it our way, Jesus said in the garden before he was crucified, not my will, but thine be done. We need to say that every day. God, your will, not my will. Not my way, your way. Uh, The death of our ambition, death of our pride, our sense of justice and rights, everything that's contrary to God or based on our own self uh, as opposed to God's righteousness. This is best depicted in this passage where Paul is explaining the same truth uh, to the church in Philippi. It was probably a small church. It wasn't a big town. And so he was explaining it to these uh, Christians there. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Think this way. Having the same love, being of one spirit and one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of another. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, rather, he made 
himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even to the death, uh, uh, even the death of the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So we're to identify with that life of the cross, the life that Jesus uh, demonstrated for us, but it's a difficult place. You know, it's difficult to identify with someone who seemingly failed, was broken, beaten, hung, and rejected, uh, who opposed the systems of this world. Listen, you have opportunity every day to either go with the flow or to oppose an oppressive system. All right? It's subtle in our culture. But ask God to open your eyes. How can I be Christ-like in this business transaction? How, be, I, how can I be Christ-like in this argument about who is right or wrong at work you know, or at home uh, or with your kids? <laughs> uh, but that's what we're called to do. All right? It's through this kind of identification with Jesus that we understand and we believe that it leads, like Christ, to a greater glory, that God is going to uh, ensure that we share in Christ's resurrection. Last part of this is that the world has a difficult time making sense of the cross. Paul really sums this up. He says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Uh, uh, the cross is offensive to many people. It, 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 it screams a reminder of our sin and the penalty of sin and really the injustice uh, against God that God had to take the penalty himself uh, to restore relationship, it is an offense. And so if people get upset when you preach the cross, maybe they're understanding it a little bit. You can actually uh, help them by uh, explaining, yeah, it is offensive, uh, but it is the means through which we are reconciled says in Colossians, For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So listen, everything that's separated from God has the opportunity to be reconciled to God, whether it's on earth or in heaven. That means everything in all of creation. That means everything in your life, everything in your mind, everything in your past, everything in your present, everything in your future, everything in your relatives' lives, your friends' lives, everything on the other side of the planet, everything ISIS is doing in the Middle East, everything those those uh, pimps are taking those uh, 16, 14, 15, 16-year-old women and forcing them into prostitution in Chiang Mai, where I was just a few days ago. Uh, it's happening here right in the U.S. Everything has the opportunity to be reconciled with God. How? Through the message of this cross. Is there anything in your life that will keep you separated from God? Only those things that you do not bring to the cross. You must bring them to the cross because that cross has the power to bring reconciliation to everything. That's what the Scripture says, right? That's why Jesus died. Jesus laid it all 
on the table when he, when he died on the cross. For what? To bring every part of your life back into connection with a living, you know, back into connection with what he enjoyed from the moment, from all eternity, that intimate connection with God where nothing was separated, all right? And he did that so you and I and every man, woman, child on earth could share in that same intimate connection. How do you do it? You come to the cross and you say, thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. And if there's something in your life that's contrary to God, you take it to the cross. You lay it at the cross and say, Jesus, I don't understand how, but I believe that you paid for this. I can now have access past this obstruction into your presence. So let's just close in prayer. If there's anything in your life that is keeping you or maybe someone you care for from experiencing intimacy with God the Father, understand that that was dealt with. That was nailed to the cross. If you have sin in your life, when those nails were driven through the hands and feet of Jesus, it was your sin being driven. And Jesus took it willingly. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. And He didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead so that He could share with us His new life. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name that You'd help everyone here release every obstacle, every sin, every shame, every guilt, every bad thought, every bad behavior, every bad memory, everything that would keep us from entering into you fully, we could leave it at the cross. And I hope that I pray that you help us be the messengers of this truth to people who don't know it. Because you deserve the worship and praise of every person on planet Earth. Because you did this for us. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, can everyone just say out loud, thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen, amen.